In our Olivet Discourse study, this very interestingly is part seven. You could say I planned this, but I didn't. You know, God's number seven. And what do you think we're talking about this morning? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in the previous lesson last week, we began our discussion of the four specific signs that the Lord Jesus gave in the Olivet Discourse His response to his disciples' question in verse 3 of Matthew 24, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, or the end of the age? He had given already a number of general signs to look for in both the first and second halves of the seven-year tribulation period on earth, and we had discussed those in verses 4 to 14. But then he backed up in verse 15, he backed up to the middle point of the tribulation in order to give his men, who are all Jewish, remember, and at this point, they know nothing about the church. So at this point in time, they are still, they are, they are representative of Israel. So he gives his men a most significant, specific sign, which was what we discussed last week, the abomination of desolation. It was also the sign that would warn the Jews living in Israel and the Christians of the world that massive, unprecedented persecution was about to begin, and it would continue for the next three and a half years right to the very end of the tribulation. Now, there will be some persecution that will be taking place in the beginning of sorrows in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, but it won't necessarily be persecution by the Antichrist. I believe that believers in those first three and a half years will be persecuted by the apostate church. You know, true believers will be persecuted by the false church. But then once the abomination takes place, persecution will be from the Antichrist, empowered by Satan himself, and that will continue on to the end. And the abomination, meaning the object of disgust that will be discussed, that will be set up in the holy place, will be what? The image of the beast, the image of the Antichrist himself, set up in the reinstated Jewish temple. Geographically and politically, the Antichrist will rise to power from the ashes of the ancient Roman Empire, which means that he will come from the Mediterranean basin, dominating Europe, um, and probably those countries that have descended from Europe, which includes a lot. You know, the whole Western Hemisphere has, uh, has come from Europe. We're descendants of Europe primarily, or at least we were. It's changing, isn't it? But so this, his 10-nation confederacy could consist of, rather than just 10 specific nations, it could consist of 10 geopolitical land groups, couldn't it? We don't know yet what it will consist of, but that's a, a, a good possibility. Socially, um, and I don't know exactly what the Antichrist will be. He might be a composite man. He might be of a European, partly European partly Gentile, and maybe even partly Jewish. I know there's, you can read commentaries and they speculate he might be Greek, he might be Italian, he might be Jewish. Maybe he'll be a composite man so that he identifies with everybody. That could be possible. A Jewish father, a Greek mother, I don't know. But that's a possibility. Socially, we do know that he will be received gladly by the majority of Israel as her quote-unquote savior. He will be like King Saul. He will be the people's choice rather than like King David, who was God's choice. He will be like King Herod the Great, a usurper king. You know, Herod the Great was the one who had all the babies slaughtered in in Bethlehem. 
He was the king at the time Jesus was born. He was a usurper king. He was Idumean. He wasn't even Jewish. He'll be like, the Antichrist will be like him rather than like Jesus who was the rightful king of Israel. The world will initially hail him as a brilliant leader, one who has finally managed to bring peace to the Middle East, which seems like an impossibility at this point in history, doesn't it? But he'll be able to do it, and consequently he will be able to bring basic peace to the whole world by confirming a protection treaty with Israel. And likely he will also be responsible for allowing the Jewish people to rebuild their temple, or perhaps even go into the mosque of Omar and somehow cleanse it and use it. Again, we don't know. He'll be able to do that without threat of war from the Islamic world. He manages to consolidate his power during the first three and a half years of the tribulation by using religion. He uses the apostate Christian church. He will use political intrigue, and he will use warfare. And then, in the middle of the tribulation, in quick succession, a number of things will occur that will give him worldwide control. And I believe, and we discussed this last week, if you weren't here, you can pick up the CD. Um, not sure I had this in the notes, I can't remember, but I believe they will all begin with his possession by Satan. You know, Satan, we learned, will be cast not only from the third heaven where God dwells, where he has been all these years, the accuser of the brethren, but he will then even be cast by Michael and the holy angels out of the atmospheric heaven called the first heaven, where he will no longer then be the prince of the power of the air, and he will be completely confined to the earth. And I believe that happens at, you know, somewhere in the midpoint of the tribulation, and personally, I believe he will possess the Antichrist. You can disagree with me on that, but um, he did possess Judas of Iscariot, did he not? Satan entered into Judas, and I believe he will enter into the Antichrist as well. Then he will take credit for the defeat of Gog and Magog. You know, the war uh, with Russia and her allies come down from the north to annihilate Israel, and God will miraculously intervene and destroy five-sixths of that army, and the world will give credit to the Antichrist for the victory, and he will gladly accept the credit, even though he never lifted a finger to defeat them. I think that also happens, and uh, then he will recover from some kind. This is mysterious, and you have Bible scholars speculating all about this, but he will recover from some kind of a mortal wound, and he will astound the world by that and you can read about it in revelation 13 and then he is able to kill the two mighty witnesses that will occur somewhere near the middle of the tribulation now nobody had been able to kill these two guys because somehow or another they are they're able to spew fire out of their mouths so no one can come even near them but the antichrist is successful in killing them revelation chapter 11 of course we know that then after three and a half days what happens they rise from the dead. He will also, somewhere near the middle of the tribulation, he will turn on and devour the one world apostate church, which he has been using and manipulating for his own purposes to this point. And then he will stop the worship of the Jews in the temple where they have been 
offering their sacrifices. He'll stop all that, and he will set up in the holy place an image of himself, and that's when he will begin to persecute the Jews. Not only Israel will he persecute Israel, but he will persecute Jews worldwide, and he will also persecute anyone else who refuses to take the mark of the beast and bow to him. The Lord seriously warned the Jews and Gentile believers who will be living in Judea when this final abomination occurs to do what? This was one of your questions. To get out of there just as fast as they can. I say if I was a tribulation believer and was reading, reading the Olivet Discourse and <laughs> other eschatological scriptures, I think I would get out of there way before it was getting close to the three-and-a-half-year mark. You know, I'd go live in Timbuktu or somewhere. Maybe, maybe right in here. Wherever I got saved, that's when I'd hightail it out of there. But he told, told them to, without any hesitation, flee immediately. And uh, we know from Zechariah 13, 8, that as a result of the massive all-out persecution, two-thirds of the Jews living in Israel at that time will perish. They will be killed, as well as, of course, Jews and Christians living el elsewhere in the world will also suffer persecution. Only those who take heed of the Lord's warning by going into hiding and also those who take heed of his warning not to believe all the false reports from false prophets about false Christ, you know, the ones who say, well, he's come, you can come out of hiding. We've seen him. He's in the desert. He's in a secret chamber. The ones who, the believers, those hiding who, who listen to the Lord, they, plus the 144,000 sealed Jews, will be the only ones who will stand a chance to physically endure to the end and to go into the millennial kingdom in their living bodies. Now, in today's lesson, the Lord jumps from the time of the middle of the tribulation, where he had just given them that specific sign of the abomination of desolation. He now jumps to the end, the very end of the tribulation, and he gives his men, two more very specific signs to look for that will immediately precede his second coming. And those two signs are the absence of light and the sign of the Son of Man. And then, we're going to discuss those this morning, and then he's going to give them one more bonus sign that will actually follow his second coming, and that is uh, the assemblage of the elect. And we'll discuss that as well. So this morning we're going to discuss three more specific signs of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Our text today, as I said, only covers three verses. We're going to look at verses 29 to 31. But they do discuss the most anticipated event of human history, which is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his second coming. It will be the event that will forever silence the mouths of those unbelievers who down through the ages have denied the claims and the validity of the scripture and the gospel message. Um, the Lord Jesus himself will come next time when he comes to this earth. He will come in full unveiled glory to set the record straight once and for all that he is the rightful owner of earth because it is his not only by right, by right of creation he created it all not only this earth but the entire universe but it is his by right of redemption he is this earth's kinsman redeemer 
the second coming of the Lord Jesus is the event that every true Christian really should anticipate even more than the rapture of the church. Now, what do you and I really anticipate? If you're a true believer, we're really looking. Uh, every day, Even I say, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I know that's selfish because there are other people that need to be brought into the church so they're not left behind, but selfishly, I really would not be disappointed if he returned right now. <laughs> we would, none of us would be. Well, I hope none of us would be. Hope there'd nobody be still sitting here. You better make sure of that. Because these things we're talking about are true, real. They are going to happen. And, you know, it's not just a story. This isn't just story time. This is truth. And that becomes more and more evident as we watch the news, doesn't it? You know, you really see how... If things weren't aligned today like they are, and I was talking about this stuff, you'd say, oh, well, that, maybe that'll happen way off in the distance. But when I'm talking about these things, they're in place today. Every, every week I talk, you know, now they're, now they're looking for our new, new identity cards, and you can picture how there might be a little chip put in our hand. I mean, everything is just falling into place. It's, it, it's incredible. But um, we should be anticipating... The second coming really more than the rapture. Why do I say that? Well, because at the rapture, you and I are glorified. At the rapture, we get our new glorified bodies. But at the second coming, the Lord Jesus himself is glorified. Now, he is already, of course, glorified in heaven. He lives in a glorified, resurrected body. But the second time, all the earth will finally know who he is. Everyone will have to bow before him. Don't you long for the day when his name is finally vindicated? I do. You know, I long for the day when everybody will finally know who Jesus Christ is, that he is the creator, he is God, and he is the Savior, and what he did for man. And I, I just long for the day that everybody knows who he is and stop mocking him and using his name blasphemously and, and profanity and Anyway, that's the time. He will be glorified. He won't come to earth as he did the first time, you know, low and, and, and meek and lowly as a small babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's not going to come to suffer and to, um, to be rejected and abused and mocked and even crucified by his very own creatures. Rather, the second time, he is going to come in power and great glory to be seen and recognized by all men. And to judge everyone, all evil, he will judge all evil. I am so looking forward to the day when evil is gone. Uh, he'll judge all evil and everyone who refused to come to him in genuine repentance of their sins and in genuine faith. The Lord's second coming is the event that will end the Great Tribulation. If the Lord did not return at this time and yet future history, you, can you imagine what would happen? The world of men would eventually right, self-destruct <laughs> by the end of the seventh vile judgment if the Lord did not return all men of earth. Now, if you read those vile judgments, I'll talk about them later on, but I think they're found in Revelation chapter 16. They have to come boom, 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 one right after another because if they were stretched out at all, there would no one be left alive. But by the time it gets, you know, it's the, trumpet, it's the seals, trumpets, and bowls or vials. By the time you get down to the vile judgments, they're just coming in rapid-fire succession. But if he didn't come after three and a half years, 
there would no one be left because men would either soon die of a suicide, killing themselves because they just couldn't take anymore, overdosing, um, being murdered either for what little bit of food they were able to hoard and somebody would kill them for their food or they may kill them because they're a Jew or because they're a Christian or just because they're not them. You know, people just be killing one another just to do it, to, to lower the population <laughs> so there'd be more for them. Um, they'd be killed in massive warfare or they would uh, die from starvation or they would be that die from all the catastrophes, the natural catastrophes, God sent catastrophes that are be taking place on earth. You know, all the earthquakes and everything else, the hail and all the things that will be going on. Hadn't the Lord said himself that except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved? Now, someone might ask, well, what difference does it make? Because when he does come at the second coming, the unsaved of the earth are going to perish anyway. And that's true. Um, you know, when he comes, just by the word of his mouth, all the armies that have assembled together in the Valley of Megiddo to not only fight the Antichrist and fight one another, but basically at first to, you know, wipe out Israel, they will immediately just perish just by the word of his mouth. That's all he has to do is speak a word, die, and they all drop dead. But there will be other people living on the rest of the planet, unsaved people. What happens to them? Well, they won't die immediately at his second coming because they will, they will go through the judgment of what is called the sheep and the goats. And the sheep will be those who are true believers, and they will go living into the millennial kingdom to then repopulate this earth starting out with nobody but righteous people. The goats, on the other hand, hand, will be unbelievers, and what will happen to them? They will perish. So all unbelievers at the second coming, you know, maybe a matter of a little bit of time afterwards, but they will all perish. So what's the point? They're all going to perish anyway. Well, the point is what the Lord went on to say. He said, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the sake of the elect those days will be shortened. He did have to have some living people, some living righteous people, to inherit his kingdom. So he could have a literal kingdom here on earth that consisted of real human beings, other than just, you know, those of us who will have glorified bodies. He had to have a literal kingdom to fulfill all of his promises about having a literal kingdom. And he promised Israel that she would have the kingdom. You know, that's her blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the church, at the, as the church is what? The rapture. But all these years, Israel's blessed hope is her kingdom. So he has to have Jewish people, Israel, to be in the kingdom so that he is a promise-keeping God. You following me? Okay, need to check on you every now and then if you're following. Now, according to scriptural statistics, God must view the second coming as more important than, than this, the first coming. Now, both comings, don't ever get me wrong, both comings, first and second, are absolutely necessary for God's overall redemptive plan for mankind and for this earth. He had to come the first time, he has to come the second time. But according to scriptural statistics, it looks like God puts more emphasis on the second coming than he does the first coming. I say that because of the 333 prophecies regarding the Lord Jesus. 109 of them were fulfilled at his first coming, which leaves 224, which is more than double, 
the 109, to be fulfilled at his second coming. Also, of all the subjects in the Bible, um, only the subject of faith is talked about more than the second coming. Now, faith is pretty important, isn't it? <laughs> you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But second only to the subject of faith is the subject of the second coming in the Scripture. For every one time the first coming is mentioned in the Scripture, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So, which does God look at as more important? Obviously, both are important, but the second coming is what ends everything, what puts it all together. You know, without the second coming, everything would be left incomplete. Well, in the scripture, now I am going to read the scripture. In the scripture passage for this study, we find one of the 21 times that the Lord Jesus himself directly spoke of his own coming. 21 times he directly spoke of his own return. That does not include the times that he spoke of his return indirectly, such as in parables. We're going to look at one of the times he spoke of his return. And we're going to consider the second specific sign of his second coming that he gave to his men in these last few verses that speak of the tribulation. When we start next week, Lord willing, when we come back next Tuesday, we are not going to be talking about the great tribulation per se anymore. We'll be done with it. Um, The Lord came back at the second coming. In the next part, the rest of the Olivet Discourse, he's going to give us parables. We're going to be talking next week about the parable of the fig tree. That's one that always has everybody's curiosity peaked, right? Parable of the fig tree. Are we the generation that will see the rapture? Well, I hope so. But we'll look at that next week. Let's look right now at verse 29. The sign of the annihilation of light. Jesus says immediately after. Notice that word after? Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Did you know that this earth and this universe are only held together by the power of God? You know, what makes everything hold together? What makes a single atom not just explode? What makes everything keep going around its orbits? Just the power of God. We have already realized in this study that even when he removes one, just one of his many works, the restraint of evil, the result will be inconceivable chaos and disintegration in just a few short years, right? In the tribulation. However, just when it is going to look like the evil one will successfully destroy not only Israel, but the entire world of mankind, and prevent Christ from having a literal earthly kingdom, God is going to intervene one more time. Of course, he'll be intervening during the whole tribulation because it's all the wrath of the Lamb. But one last time, he is going to shake his creation. He's going to leave heaven, the third heaven, in the person of his Son, his resurrected, glorified Son, who will be followed by the armies of heaven, not just all the heavenly hosts of the myriads upon myriads of of heavenly angels, the holy angels, 
but also, and I imagine, this is my imagination, with mighty Michael at the forefront of the angel army. Uh, But not only will he come back with his angels, but with all of the thousands upon ten thousands of his church saints, his bride, in our glorified resurrected bodies, clothed in fine linen, clean and white, because we will already have stood before the judgment seat of Christ to be um, rewarded for our reward, rewarded for our works, and we will be clean and white, um, not dressed for warfare. Only he is dressed for warfare. I'll mention that in a minute. But also, okay, he's coming back with all the holy angels, which are uncountable, with all his church saints, and also with the thousands upon ten thousands of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, those who have been martyred, who will eagerly be anticipating the rapture of their bodies out of the graves of earth. Now, they'll be coming back with us, with the Lord in the forefront, and they will still be in their unresurrected bodies. They'll have maybe some kind of temporary body. You know, we speculated about that. But um, they haven't had their rapture yet. They will have their rapture after the Lord's second coming. Old Testament saints, you know, Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all those guys. And also the, the tribulation saints. And, okay, so that, this huge army leaves the third heaven. And as this grand and unimaginable procession, headed up, of course, by the King of kings and Lord of lords, whose eyes, we are told in Revelation 19, will be glowing as a flame of fire. He's coming back in judgment, isn't he? And his head, it says, will be crowned not with a crown of thorns this time, but with many crowns on his head. Why will he have many crowns on his head? Well, he's already had the judgment seat of Christ. And what do we do when we receive a crown at the judgment seat? We take them off and we cast them out at his feet and he puts them on his head. And his head will be, you know, spiritually speaking, loaded with crowns. And it says that his clothes will be prepared for warfare because they will be dipped in blood. You can read this Revelation 19, 12, and 13. Because he's the only one who will engage in warfare. You and I, the armies of heaven, the angels, we don't fight. He just does it all with the sword of his mouth. But as this procession makes its way from the third heaven to this small little planet called Earth, which he so specially and so perfectly had prepared for man to dwell on, the universe itself is going to experience an earthquake. But I thought, well, I can't really call it an earthquake. <laughs> I have to call it a universe quake. The whole universe will quake, will shake. The word of God, Jesus Christ, is going to shake the entire universe. Lightning is going to crack from one end of it to the other. Thunder will boom incessantly like no man, no human ears have ever heard. Uh, All the tribulations that have been taking place for the past seven years on earth will end suddenly because the earth will be momentarily plunged into a strange darkness. What does Jesus say there in verse 29? He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. You know, the tribulation 
Everything will come to a screeching, paralyzing halt when the sun goes dark and everything is shaking and the stars are falling. You know, all those men gathered there and battling one another at all of a sudden when it's total dark, the tribulation is over. He says, after those days. And that's when this, this sign of the, sh- uh, um, the sun being darkened and the moon won't give her light because the sun will be darkened and the moon only reflects the light of the sun. So if there's no light of the sun, there's nothing for the moon to reflect. And it says that uh, there will be a massive display of falling stars. And you can imagine how easy they'll be able to see because everything will be dark and all men will be, the only thing they will see is, is all the stars or meteors or whatever they are just suddenly falling. The powers of heaven shall be shaken, is what Jesus says. I'm not making this up. That's what Jesus says. Now, over in Luke's parallel account, if you want to look at this in Luke 21, 26, he says, and there shall be signs in the sun. This is Luke 21, 26. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations. Yeah, I would say so, wouldn't you? Can you imagine if people are paralyzed with fear when there's an earthquake, like in Chile or Haiti or a, a tsunami or a, hur- a hurricane or a tornado? People just, I mean, you're just paralyzed with fear, but this is going to be worldwide. So it's going to be distress of nations. He's, and uh, he says, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear. Literally in the Greek, the word failing means expiring. In other words, men's hearts will be expiring. Men, generically speaking, men and women, young people, they will be dying of heart attacks. They will be so scared. And if you were here, you might die of a heart attack too. Frightening times. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Some 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah had predicted this very end time scenario. This isn't anything new Jesus is saying that's going to happen. Isaiah had predicted it. Actually, we'll see it goes even further back to to the book of Deuteronomy where these things were predicted. But Isaiah wrote this, and again, if you want to move over there real quickly to Isaiah 13, it's sometimes good for you to see this for yourself in the Scripture. Isaiah 13, verses 6 to 12, Isaiah wrote, Howl ye. You know what men will be doing when this happens? They will be howling in their fear. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, the day of the Lord is a term that can go all the way from the beginning of the tribulation through to the end of the millennial kingdom. That's its broad sense. But also the day of the Lord can speak of that day of the Lord that he does return, the day of his second coming. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint, and every man's heart shall melt. And they shall be afraid, pangs and sorrows, as their labor pains there, shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They'll be like going through the pains a woman feels at the time of her birth, they sh- or her baby's birth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. 
Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both in wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he, the Lord, shall destroy sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. One thing God hates, he hates many things, but the number one thing he hates is haughtiness, arrogancy, pride. Is this world not full of it? Full of it everywhere. He hates it and he will deal with it. And then then it says, therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. He's going to shake the universe and the earth is going to shake. You know, actually, this this follows the seven bowl judgments. What were the seven bowl judgments? Well, they began with the first one, which was um, boils. All the unbelievers will be covered from head to toe, like Job, with boils. Awful, horrible boils all over their bodies. And next vile judgment is that the next two, he will turn all the fresh water of the earth, the salt water of the earth to blood, and all the fresh water of the earth to blood. Um, Then it says that there will be a scorching heat. The sun will increase in its intensity, and men will be scorched. Their skin will be so sunburned that, you know, it'll be like third-degree burns. And can you imagine how that adds to the agony of having only blood to drink and, uh, and um, boils oozing all over your body. And, and then um, the next one will be the drying up the Euphrates River so that these demon frog-like creatures will um, be able to lead the armies of the east across the Euphrates to come over to join the other armies of the earth at the Battle of Armageddon. And then the last bowl judgment is an earthquake that shakes the whole earth so badly that all the cities fall except for Jerusalem. And it says that the earth uh, is actually shaken, well, as Isaiah just said, out of her place, removed, you know, her off of her axis, shaken so much. And then that's followed. Now, some say that the darkness, when it goes suddenly dark, you know, it, that couldn't last very long or the whole, everybody on earth would freeze to death without the sun wouldn't take long but you see this is immediately going to be followed by another light that comes immediately but some have speculated and i do this in your notes that it could be the end of our sun some scientists say that the sun is very close to using up all of her hydrogen i don't know if but that could be possible because one of the bold judgments says that the sun's heat is increased sevenfold and when a sun goes out it like has a great intensity of light for a period of about one to two weeks, and then it just burns out to nothing. And that's what we know happens. There's this increased sunlight that scorches everyone, and then it just goes totally black right before the Lord returns. But he'd have to return immediately, or there'd be nobody left. There'd be no earth left. But that's, you know, that's just speculation. I don't know what the Lord is going to do, and, and I don't want to be here to experience, but we will see it. You know, if you're part of the the church, we'll be coming back with him and we will experience this. We will see it with him on the safe side of things. 
Haggai says, uh, he says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and then the desire of all nations shall come. Who is the desire of all nations? Jesus. They don't desire him yet, <laughs> but... Um, but that is another name for Jesus Christ. You know, I heard somebody told me, was it somebody here? Somebody again yesterday told me that after the, the earthquake in Chile, and they've had so many aftershocks, that the earth has actually been tilted a little bit more on the axis and that we've lost a, a second or two. We've lost, but, but that was just, that's just an earthquake down in one little country one little can you imagine what it'll do if there's a worldwide earthquake that is then followed by a universe quake so you know the whole earth it's he says it will remove out of her place well in the midst of this darkest point of human history it's always the darkest right before the dawn right in this the midst of this darkest point there will suddenly be another sign that will appear in the sky and perhaps even somehow, you know, with the earth having, having been shaken off of her axis, maybe the earth will spin around quickly enough for the entire world to see this sign within a shorter span of time than the normal 12 hours. I don't know. Other, other Bible commentators say that, you know, the whole world will be so dark, just as they see the stars falling, they'll see this light in the sky way off from way off and um, that it might take hours for it to get from out there in the universe to the earth so that by then the whole world is spun around and everyone on the earth has been able to see this sign and what is this sign this is the sign of the son of man that's what we want to look at now in verse 30 the appearance of christ Um, it says and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I hear pages turning. That's because you're confused. I'm back in Matthew 24. I'm sorry. Matthew 24, 30. Now here, the Lord gives a threefold order of events. First of all, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's what it says, the sign of the Son of Man. It doesn't just say the Son of Man will appear, does it? It says first comes the sign of the Son of Man. Then it says the people of the tribes of the earth, which speaks of Israel, the tribes of the land. And the land refers to Israel, so that it means Israel, the Jewish people, will mourn. And then the third thing we are told in this verse is that they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the sequence has the sign of the Son of Man preceding his actual arrival. So then, what exactly is the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in the sky immediately following the blackout of the celestial lights and immediately preceding the appearance of Christ himself? Well, to answer that question, let's just review some of the truths we already know from the Scriptures. What was it throughout the Old Testament days that served as the sign of God's presence? When, when Israel was delivered, yes, the Shekinah glory, I knew she would know, you all know. 
When Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt, Egypt, what was it that led her through both the Red Sea and then throughout, you know, in the wilderness for 40 years? What led Israel? What guided her as a pillar of fire by night? What was it? Shekinah glory of God. When the tabernacle and then later the temple were built, what was it that rested over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, representing the presence of God dwelling there in the Holy of Holies with his people? The Shekinah glory. When the Jews turned to other gods and refused to repent of their idolatry and their adultery, what did the prophet Ezekiel see depart from the temple go out the eastern gate, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and then disappear out of sight. And Ichabod was written over Israel. The glory has departed. What was it he saw? The Shekinah glory of God. And then some 600 years after Ezekiel, when Christ's birth was announced to some shepherds, the scripture tells us this in Luke 2.9, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. What was that? Shekinah glory. It was the same sign of the presence of God with men. The Shekinah glory. The presence of God had come again to dwell with men at the time of the Lord's birth. Many Bible scholars even suspect, and I agree with them, that the star of Bethlehem was a manifestation of the Shekinah glory leading the wise men, just as it had led the Jews in the wilderness all those years. After all, the star that the wise men, the Magi, followed, it says in Matthew 2, 9, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. You know, a star doesn't behave like that. A star doesn't move forward and then stop and hang over something. But the Shekinah glory of God does, and we had evidence of that in the wilderness as it led Israel. So it is suggested then, and I'm... I'm in full agreement with this. I may be wrong, but this would be what I'd say. That the sign of the Son of Man, which will appear in the sky immediately after the blackout of the heavens at the tail end of the tribulation, will be none other than the Shekinah glory of God. It will be what announces the presence of God again coming to dwell among men. And a further reason for believing that this sign of the Son of Man will be the Shekinah glory is because of the effect that this sign will have on the tribes of the earth, speaking of Israel. We're told that the tribes of the earth, the Jews, will do what? When they see it, they will mourn. They will mourn. What is it that will make them mourn? Well, they will recognize the sign. Israel will recognize the symbol of God's presence again with her. And the moment she sees and identifies that sign, as the Shekinah glory of God, I believe that immediately she will also then see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And I believe, or Scripture says, that, uh, at, at, that she, at that very split second, she will recognize who he is. How will she recognize Jesus? I don't know, but she will. How will... I know with full confidence that when we see Jesus, we're going to know he's Jesus, aren't we? I've never seen him. I've seen pictures of him, you know, but they're not real pictures. They're artists' renditions. But when we see Jesus, we're going to know it's Jesus. When she sees the Son of Man, she's going to know 
that it's Jesus. And she is going to mourn because she's going to realize instantly the horrible mistake she made all these years in having rejected him. And some Bible expositors believe that it will be at this time that Israel will quote Isaiah 53. You know, Israel today, the Jewish people today, non-believing Jews, don't know what to do with Isaiah 53. It's like a forbidden chapter to them. If they go to ask their rabbis about it, their rabbis will say, well, it has nothing to do with the Christian Jesus. It speaks about Israel. Or, or, or they'll just say, well, it shouldn't even be in the scriptures. You know, they just don't know what to do with Isaiah 53. It's a very difficult passage for them. But at this time, it could be that they quote it directly. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, now they'll say, surely, we now know, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Why did they reject him? You know, he was smitten of God. God would never smite the true Messiah. If he really was God's son, God wouldn't hang him on a tree. Cursed is a man that hangeth from a tree. He was smitten and afflicted. But now they will know, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are, finally, we are healed. Israel, we're told in Zechariah 12, 12, or 12, 10, she'll look upon him whom she had pierced, and she will mourn for him as an only son. Nationwide mourning will be the genuine expression of her repentance. And you do not have salvation apart from repentance. You can't have one without the other. <laughs> she will mourn over her sin. That's evidence of repentance. She will repent for her sin of having rejected her own Messiah and Savior and Lord. And then Romans 11.26 will be fulfilled. All Israel shall be saved. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy will be complete. Now I'm going to jump subjects, but I'm not really. It'll just seem like that. I just want to show you that Scripture is consistent. The second coming of Christ and the fulfillment of all of his promises to Israel is a, a subject that is carried throughout the scriptures from, from the beginning, from the books of Moses all the way to the, the end of the book, Revelation. Why is the scripture so consistent? Because it was written, even though it's over 40 authors, it was written by one divine author. Did you know that Enoch, remember Enoch? He was that guy that was and then was, was not. <laughs> he, he, uh, way back in Genesis, he was the seventh generation from Adam through the Sethites. Seth was the righteous son of Adam who replaced slain Abel. Abel was killed by unrighteous king. So Enoch came from the righteous Sethites 
not from the unrighteous Cainites. Seventh generation. Enoch was a picture in type of the rapture of the church because he was translated. He was alive one minute and gone the next. He was and then he was not. (laughs) And when was he translated? When was he raptured out of here? During the flood? After the flood? Before the flood, before the judgment came, he was removed. Enoch was that man who named his son Methuselah. Remember what Methuselah means in Hebrew? When he dies, it shall come. The year Methuselah died, what came? The flood. Enoch was a prophet. Somehow God gave Enoch that information. And when Methuselah was born, something in Enoch changed. And he he began a very godly walk with the Lord that was so godly that God just took him. Many believe that he might be one of the two mighty witnesses because of the fact that he never did die. You know, it's appointed unto men once to die. You know, there's speculation about who the two mighty witnesses might be. <clears throat> Enoch and Elijah or Elijah and Moses and, you know, or they might be two men we never have heard of before. I don't know. I'm not going to say who they are because I don't know. But Enoch, did you know, other than being a prophet in the name he gave to his son, was also a prophet regarding the second coming of Christ? What? You know, how would he even know about the first coming? Well, other than Genesis 3.15, but to prophesy about the second coming? Well, he did. In Old Testament, people didn't even know about it until the New Testament was written, the little book of Jude that comes right before Revelation in Jude 14 and 15. It tells us what Enoch prophesied to his generation. He said, um, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Who's that? Us. To execute judgment upon all, upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a prophecy way back in Genesis. Well, he lived in the book of Genesis, you know, the time of the book of Genesis, but this was given to us in Jude. But that was before the judgment of the fall, and he's talking there about the the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's incredible, isn't it? Also, I wanted to share this. I don't know if I'll have time. Nah, maybe I better not. Well, I will. Worry about the time later when we get. <laughs> um, he was the seventh generation. I am a from Adam. I am a young earther. A what? A young earther. I only, I believe what the Bible teaches that this earth is only about 6,000 years old, coming near to the end of its 6,000th year of age. According to Scripture, that's how old this earth is. I believe there are many, many, many evidences to prove that this earth is young, and not the billions and billions of years that the, the evolutionists would tell us that it is. There is, therefore, you know, God does everything in sevens, doesn't he? He does. There is, we're at the end of the 6,000th year there is one more thousand year period to go which would be the millennial kingdom and then at the end of seven thousand years it would make sense that the lord at the end of the millennial kingdom what does he do he destroys this present earth and heavens and he creates a new earth and a new heaven 
That makes sense to me. He follows with everything else he does in Scripture. Well, Enoch, the seventh generation, was raptured before the judgment. And again, it shows to me that since we're at the end of the 6,000th year and the 7,000th year begins with the millennial kingdom, that we're near the time of the rapture and the second coming. Another proof that I would say we are, we are there. And then what did he talk about? All this ungodliness? <laughs> ungodly men committing ungodly deeds? Where are we in the world today if not there? Right there. Now, according to Revelation 16, uh, the fuse of the Middle East will not only be burning. This is at the time of the Lord's return. I know I'm jumping around here, but follow me. The fuse of the Middle East will not only be burning, but it will have reached the explosion point at the time of his return. The armies of the earth will have converged, as I said earlier, in Israel in the Valley of Megiddo, you know, the Valley of Jezreel on the plain of Megiddo for the Battle of Armageddon. And when the Lord and his massive army of heavenly hosts and the redeemed appear in the sky, Israel will be like David facing Goliath. She will be on the brink of extinction because all the Gentile armies of the world are fighting against her. And it will then be at this point in the drama of human history that what was revealed by King Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in Daniel chapter 2 will be will take place and what did he dream remember king nebuchadnezzar of babylon he had this dream and he couldn't remember what it was but he wanted his wise men to interpret it and only daniel was able to tell him what the dream was and then interpret it that dream had to do with a mighty statue a colossus statue that represented all the gentile kingdoms of the earth from that point on starting with babylon that would rule over this earth and would oppress Israel, starting with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then, you know, the feet were the revived Roman Empire of the end days. The, the Lord's second coming was prophesied in that dream way back, you know, by King Nebuchadnezzar, his dream, God gave it to him, um, with the sudden appearance of a large stone. Remember, it tells us in Daniel 2:34 that that stone was cut out without hands, meaning it had a mysterious origin, like the Lord was born of a virgin. And this stone just came out of nowhere. It just came out, like out, from the, out of the blue. It appeared. And it smote that huge statue, where? On its toes, its feet and its ten toes, which signifies... Uh, the, the Gentile Empire at the end, the one headed up by the Antichrist, the Ten-Nation Confederacy. And when it smote that statue, the whole thing just crumbled to pieces and the wind came along and like the chaff of the summer threshing floor, it just blew it away until absolutely nothing was left of that which appeared so permanent and so durable. And then the image-smiting stone itself proceeded to become a great mountain that grew to fill the entire earth. That's in Daniel 2.35. And the stone represents, symbolized who? Now, King Nebuchadnezzar would have no idea about this. God gave him this dream, and God gave Daniel the ability to interpret it. The stone was our rock, you know, from nowhere, Jesus the virgin-born Son of God, who um, at his second coming will smash 
the last great world empire, the ten-nation confederacy of the revived Roman Empire under the Antichrist rule, and he will end forever man's rule over this earth, as well as he will end the time of Israel's oppression under Gentile dominion. That will be the end of the times of the Gentiles. And then he will establish his own theocratic kingdom, and it will... Literally, like that stone, it will fill the whole earth. Christ will be the world conqueror. And all Israel will finally say, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Okay, real quickly, let's look at the assemblage of the elect. This is a sign that he actually gives after his coming. And it's found in verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he, again, that's referring back to the Son of Man, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they, the angels, shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. All right, here we are told of a universal regathering of the Jewish people. And again, this is not anything new. Isaiah. 43 verses 4 and 6, for example, predicts that the Jews will be regathered from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south, and even from the ends of the earth. And then we are told in Isaiah they will be called by the Lord's own name. You know, there's Jews. Today, there are 13 million Jewish people, roughly, which is a very small percentage of the earth's population. Five and a half million of them live in Israel. A little over five million live in the United States, and the rest are scattered to the four corners of the earth. You'll find Jewish people in every, every nation, probably everywhere. Um, but they will be regathered, and Isaiah says they'll be called by the Lord's own name. They'll be gathered back to the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants, and they'll be called by his name. What will they be called? Christians. Israel will be a Christian nation. Neat, huh? <laughs> She'll be a Christian nation. Now, this regathering is something that has not happened yet. Now, we see the foreshadowing of it, don't we? Ever since World War II, we see a, re, a slow regathering of the Jewish people. There weren't any in there, you know, very few there for 1,500 years when the Arabs dominated the land. Um, but after World War II, there's been a regathering of Jews. They're up to five and a half million people, but a lot of Jews, like if you were a Jewish person living in Skokie, Illinois, or Brooklyn, New York, would you want to pick up and move to Israel right now? Hmm. Think about it. Not really. With uh, the threat of a nuclear attack from Iran and all the Muslim enemies surrounding them, I don't think if I was Jewish I'd want to move back to Israel, but they're... There have been some massive exoduses of Jews, like from Russia back a few years, 800,000 Jews left, because the more anti-Semitism continues in other countries, you know, that kind of pushes the Jews to want to go to their land. But we haven't seen anything yet. They'll really be regathered, you know, after the Lord's second coming, and he'll do it miraculously by his angels. The word aliyah, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. I am Greek, and I can pronounce Greek right, but I'm not always sure about my Hebrew, but it's A-L-Y-A-H. In Hebrew, means to go up. And that is what the Israelis have given to describe Jewish immigration to their homeland. The Aliyah has begun. 
For example, back in the early 1900s, they had a massive exodus of Ethiopian Jews that they brought into the land of Israel. And today, I just read about this in one of my many magazines, they are trying to get young Jewish people, even if they're only half Jewish, they're trying to get them to move to Israel. And so they are offering any young Jewish people, if you know of anyone, tell them about this. Israel is offering them a 10-day, all-expense-paid visit trip to Israel with the hope that once they've been there and they've seen it, that they will want to move there. And there have been over 200,000 young Jewish people from everywhere, Australia, Europe, America, who have taken advantage of this program. Free trip to Israel? (laughs) Too bad you weren't part Jewish, huh? Could have gone for free. Haven't been very successful. Uh, This article went on to say out of the 200,000 that have taken advantage of this, very, very few of them have actually moved to Israel. But it's not very successful yet, but one day it will be when Jesus sends his angels. You know, there's another prophecy about the, well, there's many, but another one that is very mysterious is in Isaiah 60, verses 8 to 10, where it says uh, that um, the Jews would fly as a cloud and as doves to their windows. And there's been a lot of speculation about this. Some have said that the regathering of the Jews to Israel at the Lord's second coming will be accomplished by airplanes, you know. If there's any airplanes left after all the destruction, that they'll fly as a cloud in the airplanes, you know, and go from their distant places to the Holy Land. Others have said, no, the angels will just mysteriously transport them. The angels will grab them by the scruff of their collars and, and take them to the land of Israel. And yet others have said, no, you know, just as doves, because it says as doves to their windows, as, as doves have an, a homing instinct to return to their nesting place, that after the Lord's second coming, the Jewish people will have in their hearts a homing instinct to just go. Of course, it will be orchestrated by the angels, but they'll just all go back to the land. Jeremiah 16, verses 14 to 16, also wrote that there would come a time when the exodus of the Jews from Egypt would cease to be such a great wonder um, in comparison. It would be small in comparison to a far greater exodus. The exodus from uh, from Egypt has been celebrated and memorialized, you know, by the Jews in their Passover feast for some 3,500 years. It is the longest uh, feast that there is in existence in human history. They've been celebrating it that long. But Jeremiah says it will appear as insignificant when compared to the far even greater miracle of Israel's coming rebirth and her regathering into the land. Jeremiah was actually allowed to see the Jews flocking back to the land, not just from Egypt like they did under Moses, but from all the lands of the earth. He said uh, that the Jewish people will come back to the land this time as a righteous branch. But perhaps the most famous Old Testament prophecy about the regathering of the Jews is found in Ezekiel 37, which is known as the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, in a God-given vision, Ezekiel was, uh, he was a privilege to see Israel as a, a valley full of dry bones. And God asked him if he thought that those dry, lifeless bones could ever live again. And then God answered his own question 
by <laughs> allowing Ezekiel. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen this? He allowed Ezekiel to see the bones start coming together and forming skeletons. And every time I picture that in my mind, I see the song, you know, head bone connect to neck bone, neck bone connect to shoulder bone. And my little grandson has a video of that. You know, the skeleton comes back together and it's dancing and everything. <laughs> but the bones come back up to, together and then they're covered with muscle and skin. And yet there's no breath in them. However, when God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind, these words come from the four winds. Ooh, where have we just heard that? Exact words Jesus just said in Matthew 24:31. Ezekiel was told to prophesy those exact words to the valley of dry bones, way back in the book of Ezekiel 37:9. He was to say, "Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live." And when he said that, a miracle occurred. Those flesh-covered skeletons received the breath of life from God. And they lived, and they stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And God's interpretation to Ezekiel about this vision was that the bones represented the house of Israel, into which, in the last days, he will supernaturally breathe his spirit. And Israel will be reborn spiritually. Please don't believe replacement theology, ladies. Replacement theology is very, very big today and may very well be taught in some of your churches where they say that the church has replaced Israel, that God is finished with Israel, that wherever in the New Testament it says Israel, it really should be interpreted to mean the church which makes God not a promise keeper. He promised the Jews, you know, through the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant, that they would have a literal kingdom, that they would have the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River, and that Abraham's descendants would live there, and that uh, Christ would reign over the, the, the throne of David. You know, there's an Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic covenant, the covenant he gave to Jeremiah that he would give her a new heart, not take away the heart of stone. If he didn't fulfill his promises to Israel, why would we think he might fulfill his promises to us, the church? Please have your ears attuned to the replacement theology. It's, it's out there. It's in many, many mainline denominations. And it is, I believe, evil because there is this big thread of anti-Semitism in it. So be aware of that. Well, uh, I did tell you I was going to take you all the way back to the books of Moses, and I'll end with this. The second coming of Christ and the regathering of the Jews was predicted as far back as not only Enoch, but we didn't know it about Enoch until the book of Jude, but Moses wrote about it in Deuteronomy. This one last place to turn. If you would look, turn to Deuteronomy 30, the final restoration of Israel was anticipated in the Old Testament even as far back as Deuteronomy. In the passage I'm going to read, it's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6. It's the first prophecy that we have regarding Christ's second coming. And it is related to Israel's restoration, to Israel's regathering, and to her installation in the 
in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Moses wrote, and remember, when he wrote this under divine inspiration, Israel wasn't even in the promised land yet. She was still in the wilderness. So it's amazing to hear what God tells her about her being scattered. When she hears about her being scattered, she'd go, what? We're in the wilderness. We're not even in the land, and you're talking about us being scattered from the land? But here's what he says. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shall return to the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. I imagine they must have just been scratching their heads at that. If any of thine be driven out into, unto the outermost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God, what? Gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart, give you that new heart, and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So, the, the gathering of the elect refers to the gathering of the Jews back to the land. Also, those already dead will need to be resurrected at this time, at the Lord's second coming. As I said, they will have to receive their new glorified bodies. Old Testament saints, after the Lord returns, he will end the battle of Armageddon. Okay, you know, wipe out everybody there. Throw the false prophet and the Antichrist into the bottomless pit. No, lake of fire. Satan goes into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Then, at some point in time, now Daniel 12.12 is a mysterious verse. It tells us that there's going to be a period of 75 days between the end of the Great Tribulation, which is the Lord's second coming, and the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. So there's going to be a gap of 75 days between the Tribulation, I should say the second coming, and the start of the Kingdom. Well, why those 75 days? Probably because the Lord has a lot to do. Um, <laughs> the, the Old Testament saints need to receive their resurrected bodies. And the tribulation martyred saints need to receive their resurrected bodies. And then they all need to come before Christ at their judgment seat of Christ for their rewards. Now, as the church... We will have already had our judgment seat, the Bema seat, where we receive our rewards or lose our rewards. You know, we had that during the tribulation while we were up in heaven. But they will have to have their reward ceremony, so they will all appear before Christ at their judgment, um, not for salvation, but for rewards. And then what else will he have to do? He'll have to have the judgment of the sheep and goats, where the goats are perish and the sheep go physically into the millennial kingdom and then he'll also have to assign all of the responsibilities for the kingdom to those who will help him judge and rule over nations and so the scripture gives 75 days a gap of time and it makes sense you know to accomplish all of those things but no 
child of God will be left unresurrected or unrestored uh, because all will share in the millennial kingdom in either their glorified bodies or their righteous human bodies. All right, I've gone over time, and so I'll just end there. I had a few more things to share, but I'm sorry. Three verses, and I still kept you ten minutes over. What is becoming of me? I don't know. Thank you. I, I hope you do, but, uh, you know, we, we're not standing. Let me just close with it. We're not standing on the threshold of the end of the world. Now, there's a lot of people out there that says, oh, the end of the world is coming. No, no, no. We're not standing on the threshold of the end of the world. We, as, as, as the Lord's church, we are standing uh, on the threshold of the end of an age, the end of the church age. And tribulation saints will be standing on the edge of the end of another age, the age of unrestrained evil under the reign of the Antichrist. But we're not standing on the edge of the end of the world. That won't come for at least another thousand, another thousand and seven years. (laughs) Uh, But it's like a pregnant woman. You know, a pregnant woman, when you were pregnant, those of you who were pregnant at one time or maybe are today, But when a woman is pregnant, is she, is she consumed with thoughts of, uh, of the end of her own life? Or is she consumed, I know I was, I was consumed with thoughts of the beginning of a new life. You know, that new life within me. The return of Jesus Christ is going to bring to this world an exciting new beginning. Aren't you ready for real change Aren't you ready for a real new beginning? I sure am. He is the hope for the future of all of those who call upon his name. He is the sure hope. This ain't all there is, praise the Lord. A far better day is coming, and he is our sure hope. But for those who don't call upon his name and those who reject him and do not believe him, the only thing I can say is there is no hope. None whatsoever. This is the best it will ever get for you. So I beseech you, if you have never truly been born again, or if you even have this much doubt about your salvation, let's settle that today, okay? It's all important. 